Okay. Have you guys ever heard the phrase, the truth, what? The truth what? Always comes out. Okay, that one's good. What else? The truth will set you free. What else? What does the truth do sometimes? Huh? Okay. But do you like sometimes to hear the truth? So the truth what? It hurts. How many of you heard this one? Truth hurts. That is why so many ignore it. Have you heard that one? Nope. What about facts do not cease to exist because they are ignored? Nope. Remember that one? What about this one? We ignore truth for momentary happiness. <laughs> Regardless, if you've heard them or not, you know where I'm going with this. In today's lesson, we will see that the Pharisees had the very Son of God preaching to them, teaching them. But guess what? Because Jesus' truth went against what the Pharisees believed. To, it went against their very identity of self-righteousness. And they reject Him. Not only do they reject Him, but what do they do? They ask Him for signs. More than what He already has done. Let's turn to uh, chapter 12, verse 38. And the Holy Word of God says this. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, and yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up against this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The Queen of the South will rise up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because she... From the ends of the earth, she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Verse 43. Now, when the unclean spirit goes out of a man, it passes through waterless places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds it unoccupied, swept and put in order. Then it goes and takes along with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there, and the last state of that man becomes worse than the first. That is the way it will also be with this evil generation. For those taking notes, two major bullet points. We're going to talk about the demand. Verse 38, the demand. And then we're going to look at Jesus' response in three explanations. Jesus' response with three examples, explanations. Okay? We got explanation number one, the example of Jonah. Explanation or example number two, the queen of the south. And the last explanation of why they're not going to get a sign, the demon possession. 
verses 43 through 45. And for those taking notes, the main idea that you guys want to have in your mind as we learn about this and we study is the faith to believe does not come from signs, but by faith in Christ and his word. The faith to believe does not come from signs, but by faith in Christ and his word. So, we've studied chapter 12. We've seen many aspects of Jesus and his confrontations with the Pharisees, right? What was the first thing that the Pharisees accused Jesus of doing or accused his disciples of doing? What were the disciples doing? They were like picking wheat and eating it. Picking the heads of grain and they were eating it. <clears throat> How dare you work on the Sabbath? And then he heals a man, right? The withered hand man. He heals him. When? On Sabbath. On the Sabbath. And everyone's like, how could you heal a man on the Sabbath? And we know Jesus responds, and his, and his responses are great. You know, he, he takes them to the word, and he, and he shows their hypocrisy in their face. And then what happens when he... Uh, he exercised a demon from somebody. What happens? What do they What do they call him? The what? Yes. They call him Satan himself. He can only take away or take out demons because he is a demon himself. And then he's like, you guys don't know what you're saying. Now, I want to, I want to, Dig deep a little here, all right? So bear with me, all right? Because sometimes we read these verses of the Pharisees, and we read these stories, and, and we always tend to be Pharisees ourselves. Sorry, whoever's hearing this. I think it, oh, it's good. We tend to become Pharisees ourselves, in one sense. How dare they? How could they do that? <laughs> And sometimes we fall into these tendencies, but I want to show us how and how we can and kind of like bring that to our hearts if it is something that we struggle with. But why do you think the Pharisees are dealing with such unbelief when it comes to Jesus in front of them? What is the heart issue behind what's going on here in chapter 12? Yes. Okay, and that's a form of idolatry. And you're gonna be like, idolatry? Yes, idolatry. We were born to worship. We are wired to worship. If we are not worshiping God, we are worshiping something else. It's either God or something else. And in this case, they're worshiping, they, they think their self-righteousness is better than anything else. And they hold dear to that. They hold dear to wanting to be good and thinking that they can win their salvation on their own. And this is something that the people of Israel have always struggled with. You take it from the very beginning, right? Takes them out of Egypt. And he tells them, don't worship other gods. Don't intermarry. Don't do that. And what's the first thing 
When Moses goes up to the mountain, leaves him 40 days and 40 nights, what does his own brother do? Makes him an idol. Makes him an idol. Hey, behold, this is the God who took you out of Egypt, right? And then it doesn't stop there. It continues. It goes on and on. And then right now, I, how many of you are in the Bible plan reading and you just want to finish Judges? And you see all the idolatry that these people are going through. Kind of like they forget where, where God took them from. And they're seeking all these idols. And then it goes into the history of the kings of Israel. And then it stops in the exile. Many scholars agree that after the Babylon exile, the people of Israel will no longer go to other gods of images made of wood or stone. Even to today, to after the Babylonian exile to 2020, there is no history of them going back to those pagan ways. However, they still suffer with idolatry. The fact that what? They love their self-righteousness more. They love their traditions more. They love what they consider more valuable, more than God himself, Jesus Christ, in front of them. So, think about it. Idolizing self-rule, doing what feels right, is one of the reasons why Israel fell into idolatry. Right? The way these false gods were worshipped, a lot of the people of Israel liked it. And they enjoyed the pleasures of it. Right? Because many of that worship dealt with sexual immorality. Felt what was good in their eyes. So it was easy for them to fall into the gods of, the, of their neighbors. Because it felt right. Right? But then when you're self-righteous, what happens? You live your life with like a balance. Well, I did all this bad this week, but let me see if I can put more good into it, right? And then the good will outweigh the bad, and it tips the scale. And you live your life thinking, oh, you know, I can get away with this, but if I do this, then it kind of like, and that's what self-righteousness does. And that's why a lot of people live and like to be the lords of their own life, because in their mind, they can control, well, if I got to be good to get to heaven, right? So if I do a couple of things that are bad, yeah, it felt right to do it. It felt good. It felt pleasurable to do it. But then if I go maybe to church on Sunday and yeah, I'll just go to church, uh, youth group on Wednesday and I'll read my Bible today and you, I'm good with God. Let's do it. That's this. This is the mentality of what it looks like to have self-righteousness as an idol, to have yourself as an idol, to be the Lord of your own life instead of God being your Lord. And... Every time we say that, will never be me. Like, how dare they? Just that attitude itself, you become that. And what examples, you know, just real quick, that we can be quick to judge, right? Be quick to become hypocritical, pharisaical-like, right? And I'll give two examples. Number one, when you're around an unbeliever. And the unbeliever is acting like an unbeliever. And you're appalled. <gasps> And you think that you're better than them because you're not doing the things that they're doing, but you forget where you came from because you were once them. But because God and his mercy opened your eyes from death to life, that's a blessing. And we should be grateful to the Lord, not 
prideful, thinking, <laughs> look at me, I'm so great. Another example can be how sometimes we talk about other churches. We are grateful that we're in a Bible church, amen? That we have a high view of God, high view of Scripture. And that's a great thing. But you know how you become and act like one of these Pharisees when you start saying, <laughs> I can't believe they go to that church. Oh, my goodness. And then you say hi to somebody and they say the church, you're like, oh, wait, come here. Let me tell you the truth. And in a way, you might have the truth. And in a way, it is a good thing that we can make a judgment based on what they preach at a church. But the hard issue is, don't forget where you came from. And instead of being so prideful and thinking that you're so great because you're here, thank the Lord that by his grace you are here. And pray for those churches and pray for the friends that go to those churches so they can, so God himself can open their eyes. So you, see, you see how we can easily fall into pharisaical tendencies without even noticing? Is that clear here? Am I saying don't make a judgment? I'm not saying that. You could make a judgment. In fact, God tells us to make a judgment. How do we know what a false teacher is? Well, we have to make judgments. And once we know what a false teacher is, we go away from that. We don't participate in that. But we don't start ridiculing those that are still there. We pray for them. We speak truth in love. With compassion. There are plenty of other examples that we can go through, but I just want to give you this one right as we read tonight's passage. All right. So let's begin with the Pharisees' demand. Verse 38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. You read that and you're like, what do you mean a sign from you? What did he just do in chapter 12? Right? Healed the withered man, took, liberated a man who was enslaved by demons. What, what do you mean? What other signs do you want? Right? And who, who's asking this? The scribes and the Pharisees. We know that the scribes are... The interpreters of the law, they're, they're studious, the Pharisees as well. They're, these people know their Bible. They know it by knowledge, but we know that they don't practice it. Okay. Now, some commentators, I read two sides of it. Some commentators believe that this conversation is a continuation of the Pharisees that he's been dealing with. The ones that just called him Satan for ex ex uh, uh, taking out a demon from a person. So... In this case, teacher, we want you to see a sign. It's more like a, a sarcastic tone of voice. Like, hey, you know, we know you're Satan and we know you do things. In, but teach us, though. Teach us. Huh? Give us a sign. And then there's the other side where it says, well, these are not the same group of people. And those scribes and Pharisees are, out of a sign of respect, asking teacher, you know, we want to see a sign from you. Regardless of the fact, if they are the same Pharisees or they are respectful Pharisees, we know that the history of the scribes and Pharisees, the majority of the times they're hostile to Jesus. It's not like we have more examples of good than bad. It's more, more, more bad examples than good. And Jesus is going to say, no, you're not going to get a sign. All right. And what do you mean by sign? The Greek uh, word here for sign is a marvelous event manifesting a supernatural act of divine agent, often with an emphasis on communicating a message. Right. So this idea of the Jews requesting a sign is not, it's not a surprise to Jesus. We know that this happens a lot. John chapter 2, verses 18, the Jews then said to him, What sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? Matthew, we're going to le learn in six, chapter 16 and maybe three years from now. 
The Pharisees and Sadducees came up and testing Jesus, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. And I wanted to show, share this with you because this sign that the scribes and Pharisees are asking for in verse 38 is the same sign that's referred to as Matthew 16. They're looking for a supernatural sign. A sign that they can't say, well, Jesus probably paid that person to, you know, and then there was an optical illusion. And if only he made the sun stand still, then I would believe. <clears throat> if he made the moon turn red, then I would believe. That's the kind of sign that they're asking for. Okay, but do you think that that sign would have changed those hearts of the people asking for this, the scribes and the Pharisees? Do you think that another sign, come on, tell me the signs that Jesus has done for these people. He's raised people from the dead, right? He's calmed the sea. He's taken demons out of people. He's healed people that have been sick their entire life, but it's not enough. It's not enough. Who's the only one that can make you believe, guys? Holy Spirit. You know how many times I tell you God can only glorify God, right? Those scribes and Pharisees asking for that grandiose sign. If that happens, and in that moment there is a grandiose sign, they're still spiritually dead. No sign will make you a believer. The cliche sign, I know that the cliche saying that Brandon loves, I have to see to believe, right? Everyone says that. <laughs> you can see all you want, but you ain't going to believe. You ain't, it's not going to happen. Why? The Lord is the one that does that. The Lord is the one that opens our spiritual eyes that go from death to life. We're not good enough to choose Jesus. If given the opportunity to choose Jesus, guess what we would do? Not choose him. We will always choose what we want, our kingdoms, our desires, our life. <clears throat> so that this um, demand, Jesus is going to respond to them in three ways. And he's going to give them three reasons why he's not going to give them a sign. Verse 39 through 40. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, and yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. So he's like, You crave a sign? You adulterous people? This is a common phrase used for Israel's spiritual prostitution, you can say, throughout their history, right? I'm just going to take an example when Ezekiel 16, 35 through 42 says, Therefore, this is talking about Israel, O harlot, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, because of your lewdness was poured out and your nakedness uncovered through your harlotries with your lovers and with all the detestable idols and because of the blood of your sons which you gave to idols. This is the people sacrificing their sons to false gods, to Molech. Therefore, behold, I will gather all your lovers with whom you took pleasure, even all those whom you loved, and all those whom you hated, so I will gather them against you from every direction, expose your nakedness to them, that they may see all your nakedness. So he's telling them, you want a generation? You evil, adulterous generation. How dare you ask for a sign? 
Look at your heart, Jesus is saying to them. He said, you, you want a sign? The only sign you're going to get is a sign of joy. Anybody know what that sign is? Let's hold that thought. Everyone turn your Bibles to the book of Jonah. Jonah chapter 1. After Psalms, Proverbs, after Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Lamentations. Or you can just look at the table of contents. <laughs> what happened? Who said that? <laughs> yeah, that's good. Yeah. It's not like you're coming every Wednesday, you know. All right. It's like we had a game a couple of years ago where we did this. Jonah chapter 1. The Word of God says, the word, one one. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amitai, Amitia. Amitai. Amitai. And I, I promise you, I heard the, I, I try to like get the pronunciation, but anyways. Saying, arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish, from the presence of the Lord. So he went down to Joppa, found the ship which was going to Tarshish, paid the fare, and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So here, you know, God is telling him, Jonah, I need you to go to this city, and I need you to go tell them that their wickedness has come to me, and I'm going to destroy them, and you better warn them. And what does Jonah do? He says, no, I'm sorry, I'm going the other way. Those people are wicked. They're Gentiles. They're pagans. They don't deserve this. I'm out. Verse 14, then they called on the Lord and said, oh, so they're on the boat and then this great storm comes and then they're blaming each other. Why is this storm over us? And then they're casting these lots like the dice or you were and they cast them. And if they fall on Jonah, right? And Jonah's like, yeah, I'm running from the Lord. And they're like, how dare you? He's like, just throw me out. And he, they're like, no, we can't. <clears throat> so we get to verse 14. Then they called on the Lord and said, we earnestly pray, O Lord, do not let us perish on account of this man's life. And do not put innocent blood on us, for you, O Lord, have done as you have pleased. So they picked up Jonah, threw him into the sea, and the sea stopped its raging. Then the men feared the Lord greatly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. These, these people even, you know, feared the Lord, but just by just that calming of the sea. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the stomach of the fish three days and three nights. Then the Lord commanded the fish and it vomited Jonah up onto the dry land. And, you know, the whole chapter, it's a, it's a prayer of Jonah. He's in there three days, three nights. He spit it out. He, the, the, the fish spits him out. And then we go to chapter three, verse four and five. Then Jonah began to go through the city one day's walk. And he cried out and said, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Then the people of Nineveh believed in God and they called a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. So that's the story of Jonah in a nutshell. Did Jonah... We're not going to talk about the end right now. We're just going to talk about this part. Did Jonah produce all these miracles for them to repent? 
Did Jonah produce all these signs and wonders for them to repent? No, they didn't. No, he didn't. What was the sign? So let's say in verse 38, sins, uh, the men of Nineveh, sorry, uh, for just as Jonah was a, yeah, no sign will be given to it, but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. What was the sign that made them repent and believe? What do you think was the sign that the Ninevites saw that made him repent and believe? You're going to get destroyed. <laughs> yes, but fear could have done that. But they, they, they knew what? They knew something. What did they knew? What did they know? Yeah, yeah. He was like, hold on a second. This guy, I heard, did you hear? Yeah, he was swallowed by a fish three days and three nights. Bet those fishermen got all at the worst ran up. And that was a sign, right? Enough for the people to be like, hey, if this guy survived the fish three days and three nights, we better repent because this guy, his their God is real. Yes. Maybe. Probably. Three days. Sometimes when you eat fish, you know, you can't get that unless it's like lemon. Anyway, your whole, your whole body is full of fish. So will the Son of Man die and resurrect on the third day. And for those who would believe in him would also be saved. So the idea that Jesus is, first of all, he's predict, this is the first time in Matthew that he predicts his own death. Right? He never has done it until right now, Matthew 12. He's saying, you know, I'm going to die, right? And he's saying, you guys want a sign? I'm going to give you a sign. I'm going to give you the sign of Jonah. And what was the sign of Jonah? Just like he was three days and three nights and the people saw that and they believed the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth three days and three nights will resurrect. And, if you and you will see that sign and you will believe. And then 41 says, the men of Nineveh will stand up against this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because they reported they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. So Jesus is saying, in the judgment day, those Ninevites that repented for just a simple sign of Jonah being swallowed by a fish, and just a couple of words, repent, because your city is going to get ruined, those people are going to condemn you. How bad was Nineveh? How bad was it? And in Espanol, they say Nineveh. So I'm trying to... Nineveh. How bad was this city? They were slapping each other with fish. You want Not vegetables. <laughs> so do you. You know it. It was pagan. It was evil. It was wicked to the point that God wanted to destroy it. How wicked does a city have to be for God to destroy it? How many times have we heard God wanted to destroy cities? Sodom and Gomorrah. How wicked was it? It's pretty bad. Okay? Now... What do you think the Pharisees and the scribes reacted to by, when Jesus called them, those Ninevites are going to condemn you? What, what do you think the Pharisees, how they react? Oh, thank you, Jesus. Yes, I, I believe now. They were insulted. You're saying that a pagan Gentile is going to judge me, the greatest of all time? A Pharisee, a scribe? No one knows the Bible like we do. You're comparing us to these pagans and these Gentiles? Yes. Yes, I am. The Ninevites didn't grow up with the Word of God. They didn't grow up with the Torah. 
or the, or the prophets. They didn't grow up learning about God's miracles and greatness. They didn't. The Pharisees did. The scribes did. You have. The majority of you have. And these people that have none of that believed in God, repented. A pagan, Gentile community believed and repented. Jonah said a couple of words. And what he's saying is like, man, you have the son of God in front of you. And you still don't believe. You still don't believe. And what does he say? Something greater than Jonah is here. Something greater than Jonah is here. Someone greater than Jonah is here. Jonah was a prophet. And we know his story. But something greater is in front of you. And you're so blinded by your self-righteousness. That you can't even see it. You're so blinded by your idolatry of yourself, of, by the idolatry of your lordship, that you just want to be lord of your life, that you're not willing to just look and see who's in front of you. This brings us to the second example. Verse 42. The queen of the south will rise up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, Something greater than Solomon is here. Who wants to, who wants to take a crack at it? What, is, what is this example? What is Jesus trying to say with this example? Think about it. What is Jesus trying to say with this example? Staying on the same course. Jonah, Gentile, pagan. Sorry, Ninevites, Gentile, pagan. Jonah comes, preaches to them. They repent. The queen of Sheba. What do you think? Anybody want to give it a shot that hasn't talked yet tonight? Okay. Here, let's go to uh, 1 Kings. 1 Kings chapter 10. That is part of it. Good job, Lawson, and thank you for having the courage to try. Anybody else? Let's read. Verse 1 through 5. Now when the queen of Sheba heard about the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord, she came to test him with difficult questions. So she came to Jerusalem with a very large retinue, with camels carrying spices and very much gold and precious stones, when she came to Solomon, she spoke with him about all that was in her heart. Solomon answered all her questions. Nothing was hidden from the king, which he did not explain to her. When the queen of Sheba perceived all the wisdom of Solomon, the house that he had built, the food of his table, the seating of his servants, the attendance of his waiters and their attire, his cupbearers and his stairway by the way he went up to the house of the Lord, there was no more spirit in her, meaning she was breathless. Verse 9. Blessed be the Lord your God, 
who delighted in you to set you on the throne of Israel because the Lord loved Israel forever. Therefore, he made you king to do justice and righteousness. What does she say in the beginning of verse 9? Blessed be the Lord your God. Blessed be the Lord your God. She blesses the Lord, the God of Solomon. And not only that, what does she do? Verse 10, she gave the king 120 talents of gold and a very great amount of spices and precious stones. Never again did such abundance of spices come in as that which the queen of Sheba gave King Solomon. Also the ships of Haram, which brought gold from Ophir, brought in from Ophir a very great number of almug trees and precious stones. So the queen of Sheba, just by hearing the wisdom of God, blesses God, gives King Solomon his kingdom, all these, all these presents, and like you said, Lawson, she didn't see any signs. It didn't take her to see signs. It took her for to hear what God's wisdom was all about. And again, how did the Pharisees take this one? Happy? Why? Why were they offended once more? Why were they offended? Anybody? I, I would love to call on you both, and I know it. You guys know your answer, and I appreciate you. I gotta, you know, see if somebody else. And yes. Me? Yeah. Um, they were being compared to a Gentile. Yes. Okay. The Queen of Sheba, Gentile, pagan, and what else was she? Simple. No. She. What was she? A woman. A woman. And in that context. It's not what we have in 2020. Just let me tell you that right now. They were offended. How can you compare me to a woman, a Gentile, and a pagan? And Jesus is like, well, that woman, Gentile, pagan, didn't have me, didn't have any signs, but she heard God's word and she believed. She did not grow up with the Bible like the Israelites did. She had no advantage like the Israelites did, like many of you do have. I'm going somewhere with this. I'm going somewhere. What? I, I repeat it. Well, what's the most dangerous place you can go to? What's the most dangerous place you can go to in life? No, no. church. The church. Church is the most dangerous place. Beware. Dangerous. You know what's the most dangerous thing that you could be born into appearance of believers? That's the most dangerous place to be born at. You know why? Because you're going to hear the gospel until you hear it no more. You're going to hear it from your parents. You're going to hear it from this pulpit on Wednesdays, from the pulpit on Sundays. You're going to hear the gospel presentation all day, every day. More than anybody else would. Yet, you know the truth. And you reject it. Guess what? It's worse off for you than those that don't, that didn't. Does that make sense? Like the Queen of Sheba? Like the Ninevites? So the, the Pharisees, here we can even say, they had the prophecies of Jesus. They supposedly studied Isaiah. How could they not see it? How could they not 
recognize him. We go to the last response. And this one gets a little, you know, you're going to have a lot of questions with this one. We'll keep it towards the end, all right? And trust me, I'm not going to go the way you guys are thinking to think. We're not going to go into demons and angels and the dark world and <clears throat> none of that. Continue with the context that we've, did, we've been looking at. It's better. It's better off if you didn't know the truth and reject it than knowing the truth and rejecting it. That's the context, right? The Gentiles and the Ninevites, they didn't know the truth, yet they still believed. The Queen of Sheba didn't know the truth, but when it was presented to her, she believed. The Pharisees know the truth, and when presented with Jesus, they decide not to believe. And this is what happens. Jesus is explaining this to them. He's like, now, when the unclean spirit, verse 43, goes out of a man, it passes through waterless places, seeking rest, and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds it unoccupied, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and takes along with it seven other spirits, more wicked than itself. And they go in and live there. And the last state of that man becomes worse than the first. That is the way it will also be with this evil generation. You see how in that context it makes sense? In the context of, hey, you thought that you were righteous with your knowing and your goodness of the word, but you don't put it to practice. You're not believing it's worse for you. And you're going to be like this. It's going to be worse for you at the end than if you just would have believed. Keep that in your mind. So, we don't know the exact details of how the unclean spirit left the man. Right? Whether it was through exorcism. Whether it's through maybe the guy, the man was enslaved by sin and he decided to stop that sin and the spirit left. We don't know. Okay? What we do know is the following. We know that unclean spirits, demons, they like to dwell in men or animals. Right? We saw when um, Brandon uh, talked to us, talked about the, the demons and uh, I forget, Garadines, the Gadarenes. And he was like, please, just let me go to those, let us go to those swine, those pigs over there, right? And they did, and they go into the ocean. What we also can conclude based on the text is that this man was not a believer. This demon-possessed man, who from the spirit, who from that unclean spirit left of, was not a believer. How can we conclude that? Well, what does the Bible have to say about this? The Bible teaches that once one is saved, one you have true faith in Christ, and it's true saving faith, the Holy Spirit of God indwells in you, making it impossible for believers to be possessed. We have passages like John 14, verses 16 through 17. Jesus is saying, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, the Holy Spirit, that he may be with you forever. That is the Spirit of truth. Whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him. But you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. We also have passages like 1 Corinthians chapter 6 verses 19 through 20. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. One more, just in case you're, uh, you're doubting. 1 John 5, 18 says, 
we know that no one who is born of God sins, but he who was born of God, God keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him. Okay? So, knowing that, how does this make sense? How does an unclean spirit leave somebody and come back with seven worse spirits? Well, the only conclusion that we can take is the following. When Jesus is saying that I will return to my house, which I came, and when it comes, it finds it unoccupied. So it's not occupied by the Holy Spirit. So it's occupiable, right? I'm seeing it. And then it says, swept and put in order. This can be moral, moral righteousness, where you might feel, oh, I'm causing my parents pain. I'm causing my wife pain. And you're just going to stop the sin momentarily, not through saving faith, but just to make yourself feel better because you don't want to hurt other people around you, that could have happened here, right? So it's not true faith. So it's not a true change, right? And Or the person could have had the demon exercise and stopped sinning for a while, but because the change, there was no regeneration, the spirit came back. And how do we know this? Well, we know that just because Jesus takes out evil spirits from people just because Jesus heals people? Does everyone who Jesus heals believe? Does everyone who Jesus takes out demons become believers? What was the number that Dusty said of the number who at the end true disciples of Christ on Sunday? Who can remember that number? Yes, 500. How many people did Jesus preach to minister to throughout his ministry? Hundreds of thousands. We know that. 500. And out of those hundreds of thousands, a lot of people were healed and, 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 and taken and liberated from some demons. But let's look at an example. Everyone turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 17. Chapter 17, verse 11 through 19, the word of God says, While he was on the way to Jerusalem, he was passing between Samaria and Galilee. As he entered a village, how many leprous men? How many? Ten. Ten. You guys are not there yet. Who stood at the distance met him, and they raised their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourself to the priests. And as they were going, they were cleansed. Now one of them... When he saw that he had been healed, he turned back, glorifying God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at his feet, giving thanks to him. And he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered and said, Were there not ten who were cleansed? But the nine, where are they? Was no one found who returned to give glory to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, stand up and go. Your faith has made you well. Ten people were healed. How many came back and glorified? One. How many were saved? You can say in this context, probably one. So it, it could happen. The point is this. The dangers of signs. The dangers of signs. He could take out a demon from a person. But if the person ever has saving faith in Christ, it is mere temporary change in behavior. It's not lasting. And in this case, will be worse for the person to know the truth about God than to not have known. 
2 Peter 21 through 22 says, For it would be better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn away from the holy commandment handed on to them. It has happened to them according to the true proverb, a dog returns to its own vomit, and a sow after washing returns to wallowing in the mire. Guys, if you think signs are more dangerous, think of it, think of it. Signs? You asking for a sign? Jesus is probably telling you, you don't know what you're asking. Because even if I give you the sign, you're still going to reject me. And it's going to be worse for you. And I want to just conclude with Dusty's last verse on his, ser- uh, on his sermon on Sunday. And it's very illuminating here. Luke 24, 27. Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Jesus could have shown who he was to those people. But in his grace, he decided not to. And like Dusty said, for readers like us today to not be the ones asking for signs, except what better sign do we have than this? What better sign do we have than this? I guess you can conclude that by not showing them, he would, by not showing them the sign, they probably didn't, it was doing the Pharisees a, a favor. Maybe an act of grace. You don't want the sign. Because it's going to be worse for you. So let's conclude. Number one. Don't, don't ignore hard issues. Don't be pharisaical. Right? Don't be hypocritical. Always check your heart of why you're acting a certain way. Of how you're judging. Is it out of love? Or is it out of your self-gratification? Making feel making others feel lower so you can feel better by yourself. Number two, trust in his word for salvation, but also in everything else. Yes, we can trust in the word for our salvation in Christ, but you can trust in the word for everything else. This book is sufficient for everything that we will ever need. So when you're going through those trials and you're going through those rough times and you're thinking to yourself, is God, does God know what I'm going through? Yes, he does. Yes, he does. Put off that sin, renew your mind with the word, and act upon God's promises because he is faithful and loving and caring. And last, one of you might be here tonight being a Pharisee, being like a Pharisee, and asking for a sign. Saying, you know what, this Christianity thing, this... Bible reading thing, this church thing. I don't know. If I, if I really had a sign, I would believe. Well, I don't have a sign for you tonight. But I do have this word. And I tell you, one day we will meet our creator. And we will judge, we'll be judged based on all the actions that we did. The good and the bad. And those bad actions that we've done is called sin. And just one sin makes us guilty of hell. Just one. The Bible says that if you keep all points of the law, you stumble in one point, you are made guilty of all. You cannot save yourself. You are not good enough. Your good works will not save you. 
Belief in yourself will not save you. We're doomed. But the good news is, the gospel, the good news is, God sent His only Son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for our sins. To live the perfect life you and me could never live. To die on that cross shamefully for you and me. So that we can be saved. And the Bible says that if you call out to Christ to save you, if you repent from your sins and believe that Jesus rose from the dead, that he is the son of God and make him your Lord, the Bible says you will have eternal life. And better than eternal life, you'll be with him forever. This is the good news, the gospel. And I pray that if you struggle with this or if you have questions about this, talk to a leader after. We'll talk about it more. And I pray to God that the Holy Spirit can open your spiritual eyes and see your condition of a sinner and need of a Savior. But stop asking for a sign because you have it right in front of you. And you are going to hear it preached every Wednesday, every Sunday. And if your parents are both believers, probably every time they can, they're preaching the gospel to you. That's the good news. You know what the bad news is? <laughs> if, you, if you reject this good news, that's bad news. So bad news, good news, it can stay good news, or bad news, I'm telling you the good news, and you're going back to worse news. It's your choice. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks.